0: Welcome to the PhD in Parenting podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And this is Erin. So Judith, let's catch up a little bit. Uh, We were talking about Thanksgiving and all things holiday. I wondered how it went for you.
1: Well, it it was mixed, I would say. Uh, I shared a little bit about this on our Instagram stories. So some of our listeners might know that the roaster that I ordered that I talked about in the last episode did not come on time. So the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I was actually at the store after my husband came home from work because I don't want to drag my kids out there trying to find a roaster. There were a couple left that were stacked like all the way at the top shelf. That I, you know, walked by a couple times and then finally saw them. So it was a lucky draw. They didn't have any of the other like smaller utensils that supposedly I would have needed. But that part of it all worked out. I think in the end it went okay. Uh, I did overcook the turkey. It was my first time making a turkey. I overcooked it, so it wasn't you know as great as I thought it was going to be. Um, but. I had a lot, you know, and there was, there was a lot of food. So there was a lot of leftovers I've made, you know, some soups and some sandwiches and, and froze some extra turkey meat and whatnot. I think ultimately uh, my takeaway from it was that I probably spent a little more time cooking and a little less time with actually with my family than I maybe would have wanted. And so my takeaway from Thanksgiving is that I can pull off a turkey meal, if I absolutely want to or have to, but I will probably try and spend my next holiday actually enjoying my time with my family and try to make something simpler. How did yours go?
0: It was fine. And I knew you could do it. It's, you know what? i rather have a turkey that's a little too well done than undercooked. <laughs> than Fair enough. Real, when you get into a problem area. I feel the same. I made a joke online the other day um, comparing myself to Forrest Gump, but someone corrected me and said, no, it's Bubba who talks about shrimp scampi and shrimp sandwiches and shrimp salad and sweet and sour." That's how I feel about turkey. It's like, what else can I do with this turkey? And I got a pretty small one for our family of six. And it just seems like we still have so much left over. Cassidy. Yeah, exactly. That's next. I do. I have to step out into the store. I've just been so nervous with like these just exponential numbers in COVID that I've put off going grocery shopping. But It went well, you know, it was fine enough. And so something we talked about just a little bit in our last episode about the holidays was how the holiday season itself can often be a trigger for substance abuse. But this episode is something that's really important to me. And I'll sort of unpack why, but we wanted to talk a little bit today about alcoholism and the academy or alcohol abuse, maybe binge drinking. And this is something that I can really speak to very, very well from personal experience. I might've alluded to the fact that I have family members who have struggled with drinking in the past, but one of the family members that really has struggled with it is me. And I'm fairly transparent about this. It's never something that I have tried to hide from anyone, but it's a, particular period in my life that I guess I don't really look upon with a lot of positivity. And so those of people that have known me in the past 15 years or so always find this like really hard to believe. But I was a stone cold blackout drunk. It's pretty painful to say, but I could never kind of just meet in the middle somewhere with my drinking. If I drank, I just got basically blackout drunk and I drank the hard stuff. It was never anything like, oh, I'm just going to have some kind of like very light rose wine. I drank martinis. I drank vodka. I drank anything that was pretty strong. I had a mood or a, a like sort of a. A phase with every kind of drink you can think of, from the Long Island iced teas, which are absolutely disgusting, by the way, Mm -hmm. but to gin and tonics. I did those for a while. I did vodka sodas. I did the martinis. I did Jack and Coke. I mean, I pretty much have made it through the full gamut. And I have to say, I probably started drinking the first time I remember getting drunk. I was uh, 17. It was my senior year. I had like a little small party at my house. Don't really remember how we got the alcohol. But I remember I drank seven shots of vodka and everyone was like, wow, you are wasted. But I didn't get sick. I think it's based on my physiology and just my heritage. Uh, Dad from Scotland, as I said, he didn't drink, but both of his parents did. And then uh, my Polish-German heritage, my grandfather on my mom's side also was, he considered himself an alcoholic. He finally gave up alcohol at age 70, which I thought was pretty awesome. But this was a really troubling time in my life. I have to say, I've alluded to the fact that I didn't have a great career as an undergraduate. It was because of drinking. I kind of finally thought about what was the sort of thing that was connecting all these sort of bad aspects of my life, bad choices with, you know, waking up and not knowing where I was, bad choices with losing money and spending money. And it was like, wow, it's the alcohol. It really was. And so, I mean, I did spend a fair amount of time going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I did find that interesting and useful there were a lot of people in the program that were much older than me that had drank hard for like 20 years or 30 years. But there were also people just like me that were maybe in their early 20s that were like, you know, enough is enough. I don't want to keep living my life this way. You know, I'm not a teetotaler. I still... I really have stopped that kind of blackout drinking, but it really kind of came to a close when I was pregnant with my son. And so in AA, a lot of people talk about referring to like a higher power as like a godlike figure or whatever. But for me, I have to say that this life inside of me was my higher power and I was accountable to someone else. And so that really helped me reframe my thinking like, It's one thing if I want to ruin my life and be a drunk and a loser and all this other negative baggage that goes with it. But now I have a child. And I, of course, stayed completely sober throughout my pregnancy. And I just felt like accountable to someone other than myself. And it's really funny. You did everything, started going so much better after I had him. That's when I decided to get a master's degree. And that awful sort of BA career I had, I made up. I was like, you know, that's not me. That's not me as a student. That's not me as an intellectual. I'm going to show who I really am. After going to AA and after thinking about alcoholism and substance abuse, and even for a short time, I think when I was working on my master's, I edited two trade publications that were about recovery and alcoholism. I got to the Ph.D. program and I was really, really surprised about how commonplace drinking and drinking culture was within the academy. I'm not sure if it's more prevalent like in the humanities field as opposed to like maybe mathematics and science, but I was really shocked. It's like I had spent the last 10 years trying to avoid it. Then I show back up in grad school and here it is. Here's everyone drinking. So I don't know if you had an idea of that. Things are a little bit different in Germany. How did it play a role in your life? I mean, I know I'm being f- pretty transparent here, but it did have some pretty negative consequences in mine. How were you when you were a younger person? How was it in Germany? I imagine it must be a little bit different culturally speaking.
1: Yeah, I've talked to my husband about that a bunch of times. It's a topic that comes up where we're trying to figure out exactly sort of what the cultural differences around drinking are. It's true that In Germany, when I was growing up, the legal drinking age was 16. They have changed that a little bit where they stagger it so that kids now can buy beer and wine at 16. But then for the stuff that has more alcohol, they have to be 18. I think there's something to be said for, you know, being able to drink before you can drive. Uh, Those are kinds of things that you can probably argue both ways. But I think, generally speaking, drinking is embedded in German culture a little bit differently than it is in the United States. But there's a lot more acceptance around sort of general, regular drinking, I think. Um, But again, that's sort of something that I haven't fully unpacked for myself yet either. For my personal experience, I was a rule follower when I was a kid. I was very much not going to do anything that my parents didn't allow me to do or whatever. So I didn't start drinking at as early as a lot of my friends did. I kind of waited with that until I moved out and I was in college. But then I was definitely a partier in college. And for me, it was, I don't think it impacted my grades all that much. I was sort of like the work hard, play hard kind of student but looking back at it, looking back at it now, I'm not sure, you know, always how healthy and how safe that was. I was also probably uh, blackout drunk more than I care to admit now, and you know, we we did this like multiple times a week. And I, you know, I had a large group of friends that that had the same sort of drinking habits. Like I wasn't by myself. But for somebody who like struggles or has struggled with depression at different times in her life. I don't think that the drinking habits that I was engaging in in college were particularly healthy. And I, looking back at my 20s now, I think that sort of my general state of mind was more on the depressed side. And I think that the constant hangovers probably had a lot to do with it. And so for me, it was the same that you are reporting where once my first daughter was born, I really cut down on... I still sort of drank fairly regularly, like a drink a day or multiple, you know, multiple evenings, a drink, but I didn't sort of binge drink in the way that I did before I had her just because I felt responsible for her. Right. I, you know, I wasn't, I consider myself to be a role model. And, you know, there are certain certain ways that I want to behave in front of my kid and I don't want to behave. And I also got to the point where my hangovers were, you know, pretty rough. And I don't want to spend a Saturday with a child that wants to be entertained and engaged and just be like, be feeling like all I want to do is you know, lay in bed and watch TV. I just can't do that anymore. And so um, those are some reasons that I think for me, I've sort of moved away from it a little bit. It's probably funny. I think a lot of my friends that know me from when I was a college student that weren't quite as heavy drinkers as I was back then are probably chuckling to themselves if they're listening. But um, (laughs) yeah, I've definitely caught down on it since I've had the kids. And like I said, I think the big takeaway for me is just that it really has a negative impact on the, my overall mood since alcohol is a downer and so i try to stay away from it now from like you know more than a couple drinks
0: even in like social occasions just because i don't want to deal with the fall back the next day Um, Something that you pointed to was just thinking about how as college students, you know, it led you to feel a little bit more depression. I like to specifically think about how this impacts women and female college students, too, because I don't think we talk about that so much. I just think of some of the places that I was at completely just blackout drunk, not knowing where I was, not knowing who I was with, what I was doing. To me, when I think about that now as a middle-aged woman, I find it absolutely terrifying. And I think it's nothing short of a miracle that I'm okay because I was just, you know, kind of moving around the city of Detroit at some of these sketchy, sketchy bars, you know, the gold dollar and the, the magic sticks, not really sketchy, but, you know, just some of these places, Paychecks and Hamtramck where, you know, people were up to no good. So in preparation for the episode, you actually dug up some stats, which
1: I think are interesting. And I'll just walk us through those and then we can kind of see what we think about those. The National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse reported that in 2015, that 26.9% of adults ages 18 and older report to binge drinking at least once per month and 7% reported heavy alcohol consumption in the past month. The other thing that you found was also that since 2001, the abuse of alcohol in the United States has skyrocketed and a more recent report suggested that Americans underreport their alcohol consumption, which makes sense. Like, you know, it's hard to admit to that or there's the the idea that that it's hard to admit, but then there's also the, the idea that sometimes I think we can underestimate how detrimental it really can be. So this report suggests that at many as many as 30 million people could participate in binge drinking at least once per week, which is, oh you know, that's a lot more. Generally speaking, a lot of the research suggests that more men than women abuse alcohol, but that that gap is also closing. And I think that's going to be something interesting for us to to look at and think through a little bit further in this episode, adolescent alcohol abuse supposedly has actually declined, but adult alcohol abuse is on the rise. For the educational context that we're looking at, among teachers, school administrators, professors, tutors, and substitute teachers, and others that work in that field, 4.7% reported to heavily abusing alcohol in the month before the survey. Uh, what, are you, what is your response to those numbers when you hear those numbers?
0: Well, I'm not surprised, I guess, to say that alcoholism is very much normalized in our culture. The growing number of adults, I don't find surprising because I just look everywhere. And that's what can be really troubling, kind of what I was thinking about last week with the holidays. It's just everywhere. And you see it on television, you see it in the movies, it's just like depicted as this, like, yeah, everyone drinks and drinks heavily too, I might add, you know, a lot of the movies and TV shows I watch sort of suggest that it's like pretty normal to have, you know, six beers in a setting or drinking like just straight straight up shots of alcohol, you know, at any time during the day. And that's, I think it's actually a telling trend or like if we think about how the culture reflects what's actually happening, I think it says something interesting. The stat on the education, I actually thought was a little bit lower than I had guessed. And I wondered, again, how truthful people actually are. You had a comment, if any of this is made up with binge drinking in college. Did you want to speak a little bit more to this? Some of of the data might reflect the people that are binge drinking, quote unquote, as adults in college.
1: Yeah, I was surprised by the number 27% of adults ages 18 and older uh reported binge drinking at least once per month what i that the number that i just recited here i was wondering about um how many how much of that is probably falls into the college population so you know i think that in in college binge drinking is fairly common and probably much more common than 27% of you know college students engage in binge drinking i would be my guess and was my experience the, the one year that I was at a, at an American college. Those numbers would be more useful if that group was separated out just because I feel like it's so much more accepted in college. There's so much more opportunity to do it. And the question to me becomes, you know, what happens after college? Do people figure out ways to discontinue that kind of behavior or does that sort of seep into the post-college life? Is it disconcerting at the college level already? Is it sort of acceptable? Can we say, all right, you know, those are really adolescents that are experimenting with some things. But like you said, you know, you're putting yourself into, I, I was the same way. I was thinking back to it. I was in a lot of situations that today I probably wouldn't consider safe. And then, you know, picturing my daughter potentially in situations like that is just really, really horrifying and terrifying. And so I don't want to sort of romanticize college drinking or minimize the the impact that it can have. But at the same time, I do feel that sort of the college context um, is a lot different. And the social component probably plays an important role there, right? It's sort of this thing where people are partying, people are going out together, there are bars, there are parties it's easy to sort of have one drink too many. um, But do we still do this after college
0: when we're at home by ourselves? What I was thinking about, you said that In some ways, binge drinking and drinking is sort of romanticized in relationship to the college experience. And I completely agree that is true. Another place in space, though, that I think it has tended to be romanticized, if not glorified, is within our field, particularly in literary expressions. And why I think about this is that when I was younger, I wanted to be a great writer. And who knows, maybe I'll write that novel one day as well. But most of the people that I followed were known for being alcoholics, right? I really loved F. Scott Fitzgerald back in my time as a young teen. I just thought he was so great. And he was kind of known for drinking Um, When I think of Hunter S. Thompson, he was known for those hijinks and shenanigans. He writes a lot about drugs, but he actually drank quite a bit as well. And I think it's interesting that there's almost like this glamorization of the author as this like sort of alcoholic, wise, sage-like. Jack Kerouac comes to mind as well. Right. And so I think that sort of plays into this uh, higher education field as well, where I do find that, you know, you might have the professor who likes to imbibe, who likes to have a tipple now and again. And I wondered if you'd ever thought about if there's aspects of working in higher education that could possibly lead to more substance abuse. We do have somewhat non-traditional schedules, right? That sometimes a professor might not have to come into work until six o'clock at night to do a night class. Um, Not everyone has to show up in their office every day right at 8 a.m. And so I wondered if that might play a role in building some poor habits as far as drinking, staying up late, that kind of thing. I mean, you just talked about does this end after college, but what about the person who works at the college and keeps kind of some of those hours? Do you think there's anything there uh, to think through?
1: Yeah, I think you're right about the non-traditional schedule, um, the working from home that we already were doing before, right? The one example that came to my mind was grading, right? How many times have I sat down with a glass of wine to do my grading? I don't know if that's something that people do a lot that seems like an opportunity that you don't have at other jobs when you have to be in the office, you know, very few people probably would be cracking a bottle of wine under their desk. Um, but you can certainly do that uh, with when you're grading your papers, when you're drafting your skill when you're planning class and things like that. And so I think there's with the way that it's structured and the way that, you know, not all of the work is required to be in an office with a supervisor potentially walking down the hallway, uh, there's a lot more opportunity, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people do it. I don't know. The other thing that we we can think about is, and I think where, where you also notice this a lot more is the idea of um, conference travel, right? So I think that at conferences, there is maybe some pressure to drink. I've noticed a lot of times, you know, when you, when conferences are taking place at hotels, like people will arrive, put their suitcases in their rooms and go meet at the bar and have a cocktail or something like that. It's just, there's just this thing about conferences. I feel like that almost feels like a giant field trip for adults or something like that where you're... <laughs> Connecting with old friends and you're socializing and you're trying to network, you're trying to meet new people. And, you know, every conference that I've gone to at some point has a reception where they're serving different wines. And it helps, especially those of us that are introverts, you know, the one or two glasses of wine can really help with the networking because it just gets so much easier to connect with other people, to kind of be, you know, to be a little more outgoing and to have those conversations that connect you to other people. I don't know how much pressure there is to partake in that. I don't know if there's somebody who maybe is dealing with alcoholism and who's trying to avoid scenarios of social drinking. Does that exclude them from the opportunity to network or from the, you know, if the reception are like the most productive ways to network at conferences or one of the most important ways to do that? Are we excluding people that have to avoid those kinds of situations? Um, I think that's, you know, I think there's a lot to think about and a lot to talk about in terms of um, how drinking happens at conferences. When I go to conferences, I tend to at the end of the day, I tend to just go to my room and eat on my bed and then go to sleep early. Um, Do you have other experiences from conferences? Is there anything you'd like to share?
0: I do actually have different experiences with this. And, you know, almost every conference I've been to has some sort of meet and greet with alcohol. And you're absolutely right. I think that would be extremely alienating for the sober scholar to try to go there. And I know when I was really trying to curb my drinking, my mom and dad, because again, this was happening in my 20s, they said, well, why don't you just go out with your friends and have a non-alcoholic beer? And I'm like, that sucks. You know, I'm sorry. (laughs) It is very, very boring to be the sober person in the room with a bunch of people that are feeling good. I am so sorry. I don't know if other people have been able to navigate that better than I have, but I was just like, no, then you might as well not go at all. And it's it's a temptation. And I have had a very long conversation about this with another colleague who doesn't drink by choice. We were talking about how people just act like you're really weird if you're at one of these things because our college has had some mixers and dinners and it was open bar. And if you say you're not drinking, people act like you're from Mars sometimes. Like, what do you mean? (laughs) What's wrong? Are you on medication? And then you have to, like, launch into this story or narrative that could be very, very personal. Am I going to say, well, I'm really I've really grappled with substance abuse on and off in my life. So uh, I think I'm going to say no tonight. You know, I mean, it's just like people don't always take no for an answer. And as you said, I think there is a sense that some of these discussions and important networking opportunities, maybe to meet scholars in your field, happen at the bar after the conference. And I liked when I've traveled with my family because that's my excuse. I'm like, well, sorry, I'm just going back with my kids. We're going to have a family dinner. And I actually enjoy that quite a bit more. I We talked about conference travel some months ago, but I like those little times. Or I think I've only gone to a conference by myself a handful of times and I did what you did. I was just like, I'm going to order some room service. Seems very <laughs> luxurious. And chill out and, you know, check out my social media. But I think that can be really challenging for anyone that's either trying to cut back or trying to stay sober. I don't think people always accept that when you just say, no, it's like, come on, it is like adult peer pressure. You called it an adult field trip, but I feel like it's total peer pressure. And I've had some kind of weird things happen at conferences where people were intoxicated and it became a problem and it was a stress. And, you know, you want to help your colleagues, but it just made for an uncomfortable comfortable situation because it can't, it's a fine line from having a good time to being like, okay, this person needs to go to bed now or something like yeah. that. Right. So to kind of um, connect back to our, you know, overarching theme for the podcast, we think this also plays a role in kind of the culture of parents. And so you were kind of noticing this a little bit more in the lives of parents, but particularly in moms. What did you, what were you thinking about that?
1: Yeah, I was at the store this past weekend and I walked by like the Christmas aisle and I just saw this little cup that was like, oh, you know, that was like a wine cup with a lid with a lid and said mommy's sippy cup on it, which I'm assuming that all of our listeners have seen. Um, have noticed all of these sort of consumer goods. And then also, you know, there's just so many memes that just talk about how, you know, basically the time between coffee and wine is just a big loss. And I, you know, I, I don't have any, like, snazzy, pithy ones um, available and right at the top of my head. But I'm sure that our listeners are very familiar with and aware of the kinds of cultural products that I'm talking about. And so I, I think it's a really important thing to think about how the representation of women drinking and the representation of the relationship that women have with wine sort of makes light of the drinking culture and, the, you know, the mommy wine culture, as people call it. So there's always this implication that like, oh, at the end of the day, I finally get to like sit down and or I need that glass of wine. It's presented as a need, as something that like we can't do without. And at the same time, it's presented as as this act of self-care. And that's just something that I always really struggle with that, you know, where I feel like that's not... Uh, that's not self care when when you elevate the glass of wine at the end of a day into such a status that like that's all you're working towards your entire day or that's what you live towards your entire day. That's not true self care in my mind. The connection between the memes and the consumer goods about that perpetuate this idea that like mommy needs wine, quote unquote, I think is really detrimental because it becomes like our responsibility as moms through consumption to be sort of like happy with our lives and to function in the lives that we have built and to sort of maneuver or manage our own emotions and make ourselves feel better Like it's sort of this way in which wine becomes a manner of self medicating, whereas the real conversations that we should have, especially in the current moment, relate more to you know why do women feel like they can't make it through the day or they can't make it through parenthood without their like daily dose of wine? What does that say about our relationship to our kids? And we can talk a little bit more about that too. But the question I think for me becomes like why is it th- or I think the role that wine then plays in sort of like the cultural discourse is to just medicate moms so that they don't start thinking about, you know, what the sort of systemic issues are that make it difficult to be a mom. Because, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to say being a mom isn't difficult right now and people shouldn't, you know, whatever, shouldn't need the glass of wine at the end of the day or they shouldn't need something that feels like it's self-care at the end of the day. I think we all do. I think being a mom is really difficult, right? Especially right now in the pandemic, I don't know that the solution should be that we medicate at the end of the day. The solution should look something more like having more and more conversations about what are the systemic arrangement that make it so particularly difficult. And I've gestured a little bit now towards the pandemic and how the pandemic has made it even more difficult. But at the same time, I don't think that this is necessarily all that new, right? If we look back to the sort of like the history of motherhood in the 20th century, there have been other times when uh, women have sort of used the self medication to maintain the lifestyle that they have and to sort of manage their own emotions. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: You know, it's my favorite book. Like, so maybe I just need to write one day about the feminine mystique. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that sort of, and we, this sort of feeling of just absolute existential dread that Dan sort of talks about these housewives kind of living through. And I feel like there was a little bit of that in that book, right, of like just how dull, monotonous and boring in that time period. And so like, yeah, right. You have to like turn to a little bit of wine to get through the day or the other book that I really thought of, which is kind of uh, I want to say it's almost like a cult classic is Valley of the Dolls because that was made into a film as well, a pretty popular film. The phrase was Mother's Little Helper. And this was more of the pill culture. But this idea that once again, women needed to be medicated in order to get through the day just to be themselves, whatever roles they were playing. The thing that I think is so important to realize is when does one glass become two? And when does two become the whole bottle? And when does a bottle become two bottles? Because I've seen that. I've lived that. I know people that are still living in that. And that's a sort of scary part to me. Are we normalizing substance abuse? Because in AA, they will tell a person, look, if you need this every day, then that's a problem. Try to go without it. And if you can, you're probably in the clear. But if you get to a point where this is something you live for, every day, that's a crutch. That's not just like, you know, self-care. There, there is more to it than just that. And so I really think there's something here that we could really probably write about, honestly, if we're thinking about like sort of neoliberal discourses and maternity and the culture of consumption, just how normalized it is like, hey, everyone, wine time. Um, the memes are ridiculous. I was going to do a project on this before I had like 30 or 40. I was trying to share them with my students who didn't quite get my <laughs> sort of like I was really like, look at this, you guys. I mean, like every single meme here is like saying, you know, these moms have to like Basically, drug themselves to get through their day because a lot of people are starting early. It's not just at the end of the day. I've seen, you know, posts of people carrying it's like a um, insulated cup. I think it's called a Yeti, where they're like, yeah, you know, nothing like the Yeti to get me through the this particular activity with my kids. And basically, it's suggesting that in order to do this activity, whatever it is, going to the park or doing trick or treating, they're getting drunk. And I mean. I just I I feel like that's really problematic. You talked a little bit about setting that example for your daughter. And what kind of like sort of um, ideologies are we perpetuating? We're normalizing this like we have to be, you know, sort of anesthetized, if you will, to make it through our day as women.
1: I agree with that. And I think what gets me the most about that is just how that defines our relationship with our kids. I'm always somebody who's struggling with like, you know, negative mindset or whatever. And I have to work pretty hard at like, you know, staying positive and whatnot. And if my mindset is, and if I have like a kitchen towel and uh an apron and a cup and three other products that tell me mommy needs wine and I can't make it through the day without wine or like, I, you know, all the only thing that matters is that I get to the end of the day and the kids are in bed so that I can have my wine. I don't like what that does to my relationship with my kids. Because then the kids become either like a hindrance to like on my way to like getting to that glass of wine. Like if only I can get them to bed, then I can finally have my wine. Then they're like an obstacle that I have to bypass to get to that point. I don't want them to to be that. I don't want them to I don't want to think about them in those terms. Or it's just like they're just like such a horrible part of my life that like, I can't handle it without drinking. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm not a huge fan of trick or treating. I've also mentioned that I don't particularly enjoy pretend play. You know, I don't enjoy every single part about, you know, motherhood, but that doesn't mean that the only way that I can handle it and the only way that I can make it through is if I'm like mildly intoxicated. Um, That just is not how I want to think of myself and the other aspect to that, I think too, is that all of these products that we're paying money to have send the message to us that we're incompetent as parents. Mommy can't do it without X, right? And so that's another thing that really bothers me too, is that I already struggle with self-doubt in the same way that I just outlined that. Um, and so now there's just this this additional messaging that I pay my hard-earned money, actually, to bring into my home that then, again, reinforces the idea that I don't know how to be a mom. I can't do it without, you know, what previously was called Mother's Little Helper. Those are two aspects about it that really, really get to me and that really bother me. So do you feel that alcoholism is not looked upon in the same way as other forms of substance abuse
0: like i f- do we do we feel like alcohol is sort of more accepted and other things are less accepted oh absolutely and i've brought this up since the 90s i mean by now marijuana has been legalized for recreational use at least in some states i don't know what the stats are on this but i always found it to be really perplexing because i have observed firsthand people At bars, you know, I worked in the service industry just out of control. I've seen fights. I've seen people put fists through walls. I have seen just the worst kind of things happen when people are drinking and drunk. And the way that that sort of is still acceptable compared to smoking pot and the pothead in this like sort of like nefarious way. And I mean, certainly there are cultural productions that show the negative consequences of alcoholism. I'm thinking in particular of the film Leaving Las Vegas, but there are so many others that really glamorize drinking and make it look oh so fun. I'm thinking of silly sitcoms like Cougar Town, but then I'm also even thinking of the show my daughter watches, Supernatural, where every time the boys solve a case, they have a six-pack and shots. So I think there is sort of this glamorization of alcohol in alcoholism within popular culture, and it normalizes it a bit. You know, it's interesting to me that like here we're like kind of like haha, laughing at the mom, the suburban mom, that it's like basically abusing a substance to, you know, be around her children. The other really important aspect of all of this that I think deserves critical attention is how race plays a role in these representations of mothers drinking. I think there's almost a sense that it's cute when a Caucasian woman is seen slyly sipping her Chardonnay at a soccer game. But conversely, what would happen if there was an image of a Black woman doing the same thing? I definitely think that's a project that deserves more scholarship and scrutiny. But now I just wanted to change gears a little bit. You were sort of talking about, I think you were, you were talking a little bit about the pandemic. Do you think that this, the current situation has led to more of this sort of behavior or less?
1: Oh, that's a good question, because I think partially this is a social thing. And that was something that I actually meant to throw in earlier as well, where one of the articles that I was reading in preparation for this was like a comment about playdates and mimosas at playdates and how some moms like feel overwhelmed when they step into a playdate and somebody is trying to hand them a mimosa at 10 10 a.m. And like, how do they turn that down? I haven't had that happened too much, but I've definitely been in the situation. So that opportunity has sort of fallen by the wayside but at the same time I think we have an exacerbation of the other aspect that I was mentioning earlier in relation to uh, drinking in the academy, which is we're all home all the time, right And so you don't have to go places. you don't have to worry about oh I still have to drive somewhere or oh I still have to see X, Y and Z or whatever all in all, I do think that the pandemic puts a lot of stress on parents and, and, Mothers, especially. And so, just judging by the amount of memes that have been created about how mommy's drunk and how, you know, the teacher is drunk and how the, how I'm teaching my kids math is like by how to, you know, mixing cocktails and like all of these, again, like you said, like making light of um, drinking and how that shapes the relationship with our kids. I think based on that, at least it's become a bigger joke. Like, I don't know, you know, I don't have any research on whether or not um, there has actually been more drinking at home now, but it definitely has become even more per- pervasive in terms of the memes that are circulating and in terms of the jokes that people are making about how mom is drinking or how mom is drunk. And that's, that's my sense of it. How do you feel about that?
0: I've seen a lot of those jokes as well. And I think this could be extremely dangerous for people that have suffered or are suffering from that sort of substance abuse I think you're right. I mean, there's just all the stress. And so what do we do? What's a socially acceptable form of dealing with stress? Well, drinking. So I have seen a lot of those pictures, jokes. And I mean, it makes me a little worried, right? Like, are we really all that wrapped up in drinking all the time that, you know, if if it's as accurate as it's portrayed in social media, then I'm sort of worried. I have a question, too. What if something bad happened and you've had a few and you're the only person at home? How how awful would that be? Not to make the right judgment call, or something happens to a child—they're ill, or they have an accident—and you know, I'm drunk and I can't drive them to a hospital or something like that. Hospital, right? That's always my worry too. That would just be terrifying. Wow, we have just covered so much ground already today, but I think as academics, we're always kind of thinking through how what we talk about on the podcast could lead to more research. So I think it might make sense to circle back to some of the areas that we think we could do a little bit more in as far as looking up data, trends, and things like that. What do you think?
1: I think, like you said, the, the way in which... Race and class play into that would be very interesting and very compelling, too, because I think the fact that it there's almost no stigma surrounding um, alcohol use for, like, for, as you've said, the suburban middle class white woman. I don't know how much that maybe exacerbates the problem or makes it easier, makes it, you know, more prevalent in some ways.
0: Obviously, for our listeners, you and I are not you know, psychologists, we're not professionals uh, who specialize in substance abuse treatment, but we just thought we'd be remiss if we didn't kind of like at least give any listener who is maybe like wondering about this. Maybe this episode has given them a little bit of food for thought or pause for concern. I did just pull up a list of some of the warning signs that you may have a problematic uh, relationship with alcohol. Some of these we've already mentioned, and then you know what? There um, are a lot of great hotlines uh, with the National Institute of Mental Health and SAMHSA that we will include in our show notes um, in our link. So. One sign that a person might be having trouble with alcohol abuse is just obviously spending a lot of time obtaining, using, and recovering from the effects of alcohol. That recovering was key to me. You did you kind of already mentioned that, but um, that idea of like the hangover takes up your whole Saturday, I think that always gave me pause for concern. Another sign is not being able to cut down on alcohol use, even though you want to do so, right? Kind of having a sense or an inkling that maybe this isn't great behavior, but when you try to cut down or cut back, you just can't do it. Obviously cravings, you know, um, and if, if you're every day, you're kind of like waiting until that 8 p.m. I can have my wine that might be considered a craving and then having the tolerance, right? This is something that I think affected me quite a bit or what I just mentioned, too. It goes from one glass, to two glasses, to a bottle, to maybe two bottles and, you know, still kind of feeling like I could still drink more. Those were some of the warning signs that I sort of stopped and took note out. Are there any other warning signs on the list that sort of we should unpack?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one that sticks out to me, especially in relation to drinking as a mother, is the idea of giving up previously enjoyed social, occupational or recreational activities because of alcohol use. This is kind of linked to the following point, which is being unable to fulfill major obligation at homework or school because of alcohol use. So I think that, you know, those are two ways in which our relationship with our kids can be sort of redefined where, you know, we're unable or unwilling to do The things that we need to do with and for our kids throughout the day, because we're just sort of trying to get to that drink, like you already said. Um, So that I think is an important factor to watch out for too.
0: Yes. And I think that's something that people can keep an eye on. Uh, There's another point, which is like, you know, having social problems or interpersonal problems. I have to say, in my time in my 20s, I did have a few friends and friendships that were actually impacted, if not ruined, uh, dissolved because of my drinking. That could have been a warning sign. So I would just say if a friend has come to a person and said, you know, I think your drinking is a problem, that's usually a pretty good sign that, you know, maybe you should consider it um, and maybe try to seek help. Because I know I had several friends approach me about it. Some even called my parents about it. Oh, I did wow. not. I, yeah. I And so I was still just like, no, 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 everything's fine. And I think that's really important too. If friends are reaching out, family members have said something about it, it might be time to reassess. Obviously, using alcohol in dangerous situations such as driving or operating machinery, you know, um, I've known people again, I always wonder about these social events and things like at the college, right, people go to a holiday party, have three or four drinks and then drive home. Are they really safe to drive? I always wonder about that as well, because I don't think technically they would be. And then it says another warning sign is continuing to abuse alcohol despite the presence of a psychological or physical problem that is probably due to alcohol use. So that kind of goes back to that depression you talked about. So I actually was thinking a little bit of your dissertation project, and this is a hard question, how some of these representations of wine culture, I mean, you've already sort of thought about this, but can they be understood at all through feminist theory? Have you already sort of pointed to that? And would that be a project for further research?
1: Absolutely, I think there's so much there when you're thinking about representations of women and uh, and drinking, and it ranges from. The, you know, what we talked about, it ranges from all of these memes that you had already picked out. I think that would actually be an interesting, um, I wonder if you, I haven't taught a class in a long time, but uh, rhetorical analysis of a meme would probably be pretty interesting or a group of memes. And then, you know, to consumer products, other products. To television shows, to um, somebody pointed out the Amy Poehler movie, uh, Wine Country, I think it's called. So there's a lot of cultural representation that glorifies women drinking. And then, as we've already sort of discussed, the race and class aspect of it all why is sort of middle class suburban drinking, wine drinking so accepted? And when we have come to a pretty clear understanding in a lot of other Um, scenarios that substance abuse probably isn't so great. And what does that say about the role that women are supposed to be playing in society? To what extent do sort of these narratives and discourses contribute to a cultural conception of motherhood where despite all of this discontent, this clear discontent and the struggles that mothers are going through as a culture, we refuse to engage with them and we refuse to hear them on a systemic level and to consider changes that we can make and instead sort of create this entire commercial apparatus around self-medication in like a really funny, lighthearted way. So, I think there's a lot there to be thought about further. You know, maybe this should be, this could have been a chapter in my dissertation or even an entirely new project. If anybody is out there who's still sort of looking for a dissertation project, this might be a way to go. And do any of the books maybe that you wanted to mention? play into that? Are there any that somebody who wanted to do a dissertation on that
0: could start with? I actually wanted to bring up one in particular, which was called Drunk Mom, a memoir by Joita Badalowska. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. And we actually attended a conference session where she gave a keynote speech when we're at a conference on motherhood in Toronto. And this book, it's a pretty tough read. It is her autobiography. And she is very, very, very transparent about all the ups and downs of her substance abuse. And she had been sober for a brief period when she was pregnant. And I believe as it went, she fell off the wagon and she just documents it all. It's pretty eye-opening for, for people that are unaware of like just how low life can get when one is dealing with alcoholism. She's brutally honest. There's one headline um, in one of the reviews that says something like, when is telling all too much? And how this really pushes the sort of envelope for like revealing. But I felt like it was a really honest portrayal of what she had lived through. I had a second book, and this one was just something, (laughs) I guess, based on my history. Amazon was like, you'd like this book. So I actually (laughs) bought it, which was odd. It was called The Recovering Intoxication and Its Aftermath by Leslie Jameson. And she is an academic, which I thought was probably why it appealed to me. I do think this one was based on her dissertation. It just has to be based on the way it was written. It's The, the trouble with this one is it's about 500 pages. So oh. I started to feel like it was a little bit draggy. And what she kind of, she's, it's almost like a mixed genre approach, if you will, because she simultaneously explains her own foray into alcoholism. And it was really interesting because she too, she is a writer. She was at Iowa for creative writing, I believe. And so So she was immersed in this place and space where all these famous writers had come through, drank famously. And so she really, she also sort of bought into that and, you know, just had some really outrageous things happen to her while drunk. She sort of mapped simultaneously the history of substance abuse in America, which I did find really interesting, substance abuse and recovery. And so she did a really interesting job sort of talking through the history of recovery programs in America, which I found to be pretty fascinating. So that one's a long read, but worth a look, I think. And you know, I was like, hey, there is either someone's dissertation in that, what you just sort of mapped out, or a possible edited collection. Either way, I think there's really a lot more to unpack here. So I think this is a really good conversation so far. I think there's a lot more to think about. Do you have anything else you wanted to say or uh, maybe respond to before we close out today? I love the idea of an edited
1: collection on that. We'll have to continue that conversation elsewhere.
0: All right. Well, if you'd like to continue, continue the conversation we'd love to hear from you i'm actually very curious to hear if the use of alcohol plays a role in other social outings in fields beyond the humanities or if this is just kind of like alone or unique to our field. So I'd love to hear from you there. If you have any other questions or comments, to take us home. Where can they find us in the social media realm?
1: We're at PhD in Parenting on Instagram. So we love to hear from you there. We always share new episodes and things like that. And then if you want to send us an email, you could do so at phdandparentingpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, feel free to subscribe, leave us a review, share us with a friend, all of those things help to get the word out and to help other people find us. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to see where you guys are all listening from. So thank you again for listening today. And we look forward to speaking with you again next week.
0: Great. Right. Thanks, and we look forward to continuing the conversation.